Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Aronex podcast, coming this week from the International Maritime Organization in London, where a historic agreement has been reached on strengthening a set of targets to reduce and remove shipping's greenhouse gas emissions. My name's Craig Eason, and as well as host of this podcast, I'm also editor of the Fathom World website. And over this whole week, I've been at the IMO headquarters where IMO member states have been deliberating a revised strategy to decarbonise international shipping, a strategy which some wanted to see aligned with what's needed to keep within a one and a half degree global temperature increase. This agreement has been a long time coming with months of diplomatic discussions and there are delegations calling this outcome historic, but others say it falls short of what's needed. So in this episode, we hear from those that I've spoken to who were at the IMO at the meeting. But before we hear from them, let me give you a few basic facts so you're up to speed. The important thing here is that there are now stronger targets for shipping to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions for 2030, 2040 and 2050. It's achieved the goal that the meeting was set out to do. There are percentages. They're not as low as one would have thought if one had been here at the beginning of the week, but it is a version of compromise. There have been plenty of behind-the-scenes, in-camera activity, both in the week before the week-long meeting at the Marine Environment Protection Committee, as well as the meetings during the committee. Then during this week's MEPC, a heavily attended working group at the IMO's meeting was formed, same chairperson as before, namely Sveilung Afterdal from Norway, who's chaired all of those intersessionals and the working groups for greenhouse gas discussions. So the greenhouse gas working group began halfway through the second day of MEPC. Um, that was because there was a day and a half of um, diplomatic interventions at the start where member states reiterated and quite honestly they seemed to reiter- reiterate what was already known. So the Greenhouse Gas Working Group began halfway through the second day of the MEPC meeting and then it was wrapped up by the end of Thursday. So only two and a half days of in-camera meetings. It hadn't looked that good. I saw some of the provisional outcomes during the meetings and I thought then myself that that is not going to be appeasing anybody. But by the end of two and a half days, they had something. They've got this revised strategy that was then delivered to the main plenary of MEPC for acceptance. And within that, there are higher levels of ambition. And it's this detail that I think is interesting. The one main thing I will say is that the level of compromise that's had to be found, and as you'll hear in a minute, there's something in it to be annoyed about by everyone. So in this revised strategy, there are still the 2030 and 2050 target dates, but there's also now specific ones for 2040. The 2030 target for the reduction in the CO2 emission intensity of shipping is the same as the initial strategy. The carbon intensity of international shipping is to decline with the CO2 emissions, note this isn't greenhouse gases, to go down as an average across international shipping by at least 40% by 2030 and this is compared to the figures that they've got for 2008. While the uptake of zero or near zero 
greenhouse gas emission technologies, fuels and energy sources is to represent at least 5% for 2030 of the energy used by international shipping. That's in what's known as indicative guidelines. Now it's noted that this phrase will probably please some but not others. But it allows for more technical solutions to be delivered such as wind power and the use of electricity. But there is the 2050 revised target, a target which has raised a few eyebrows due to its vagueness. It says to peak greenhouse gas emission from international shipping as soon as possible and to reach net zero GHG emissions by or around, i.e. close to 2050, taking into account different national circumstances. That's not very hard and fast but it is more than was in the initial strategy. And then, as I mentioned, the indicative checkpoints for 2030-2040, which are to reduce the total annual greenhouse gas emissions from international shipping by at least 20%, striving for 30% by 2030, and to reduce the same to reduce the total annual greenhouse gas emissions from international shipping by at least 70%, striving for 80% by 2040. Also, in the report are agreements on how to perform the impact assessments of the economic measures, so that one or a blend of some of the elements of them could be agreed to go on at further meetings of the MEPC to be adopted, and importantly with entry into force in 2027. Meanwhile, the IMO strategy itself is going to be reviewed every five years, and this will undoubtedly allow the IMM members to look at how the goals within the strategy can be tightened up. So what's the feeling amongst those who were in the room this historic agreement was made? Here's the chair of the intercessional meetings and last week's working group hero, Sveinung Oftedal from Norway, who's been steering the discussions to decarbonise shipping. We started talking about what these target percentages mean. If you look into the uh, content, that content will grow in time because it's now f the basis for the action needed. Meaning, is not only an intent, uh, it's also a follow-up plan with a timeline. So this is now the basis for decarbonizing shipping. What I see within some of the details of the report, when I looked at the other strategy, mm -hmm. there are certain percentages relating to 2030 and 2040. Some of those percentages are this indicative checkpoints yeah. that emerge, but there's another set of percentages before that in the text. Can you explain that text, that part of the text for me? The levels of ambitions and the checkpoints will be used as a basis when we develop measures. So uh, we have then two sets of measures. One, the existing short-term measures will be um, revised in by 26. And then the new basket of measures, as we call it, with a technical element and an economic element, then have an intent to be adopted uh, in 25, entering into force in 27. Now, when member states negotiate the requirements within those measures, Members they will then need to use the levels of ambitions and the checkpoints as a basis for the exact requirements so we know what will be the result of those requirements. What do you envisage happening now then? So we've got today's working group that uh, has ended at MEPC. There's going to be an intercessional, I believe, yeah. at the start of the week before the next MEPC, which will be in April. 
yep. next year. But what about the work in between? First, I will have my summer vacation. But then uh, member states, uh, after having their summer breaks, will start then to prepare for the de further development of the measures to be submitted to that intersessional. Then, in addition, uh, there will be a follow-up on uh, the life cycle uh, guidelines for fuels, so that we have initiated. Also, on the measures as we can see them now, we will initiate a comprehensive impact assessment, meaning the information we need on what type of effects this will have on states when we develop those measures. So a lot of work will be initiated uh, after the summer break uh, as the follow-up. There are many uh, delegations now which want to work together. I'm sure that will happen. And also, as I said, uh, the initiation of the comprehensive impact assessment, which the Secretary General now is uh, invited to do, will happen. How is that going to happen? Is it UNCTAD? I heard mention of UNCTAD. Is it UNCTAD that's going to be invited to do those impact assessments? Yeah. The Secretary General then will invite a steering committee to be established as the focal point for the committee to steer this work. And that will then be consist of representatives from the member states. Then there will be an invitation to UNCTAD, but I guess also, in addition, they will require other type of expertise to be a part of this work, meaning they may invite in a tendering process to have other type of scientific input to that process, so we have the best available information on the impacts on states of the combination of measures. Svarling Afterdal from Norway, who's been chairing the greenhouse gas meetings and have developed the greenhouse gas strategy. As he said, the next steps of the strategy will be to determine which measures will be developed to drive shipping to achieve the strategy targets. The chair of MEPC is Harry Conway from Liberia. In a press briefing directly after the close of MEPC, he explained the next steps in deciding which of those potential measures will be subject to a study to assess the impact of each measure on each member state, notably the developing countries, least developing countries and small island developing states. What's going to happen now that the strategy has been adopted and we have now set the ambition in the strategy, as you know now we are aiming towards 2050, we have intermediate checkpoints, so the next major step will be to um, select the midterm measures that we will do once we select these midterm measures, but you cannot just select midterm measures without laying down criteria. So going forward, the steering committee that is going to be established ASAP right after here, as was adopted just today, once that steering committee is put in place and we lay down the criteria for the measures and we select the basket of measures, immediately, um, based on the measures selected, then we will not uh, try to initiate the requisite impact assessment. Because they all go hand in hand. Without uh, the uh, selection of the basket of measures, you cannot do any kind of impact assessment. You must first know the measures that is going forward that goes into the basket based on that measure, then you now do the uh, uh, impact assessment. However, the impact assessment itself cannot proceed without first identifying the criteria upon which you are going to conduct the impact. Now, for shipping companies, one of the main focuses is this indicative checkpoint of a 70% reduction in total greenhouse gas emissions within 17 years. Now that, that is the lifespan of a large vessel such as a bulk carrier or tanker or container ship. 
order it today, likely to be delivered in 2025, and it's likely still going to be in service by 2040 when this 70% reduction checkpoint will have been reached. Frederick Larsson is head of environmental policy at the Swedish Shipowners Association. Oh, it's uh, quite clear that we have an agreement now, we have a strategy. It's non-binding, but nevertheless it's a major step forward for this uh, organisation. All the countries came together uh, and there has been a lot of negotiations behind the scenes. At that time we were a bit uh, puzzled, uh, we were a bit scared of what they were to come up with. Were you worried that it wasn't going to be strong enough, that the percentages weren't going to be there? that the wording was going to be too woolly. Exactly, yeah. We didn't really know what was going on. The industry was not part, uh, partaking in these discussions behind the scenes. Uh, but eventually there was some smoke in the tunnel and uh, we have a, an agreement now, which is great. And uh, as far as I understand, uh, there, there were a lot of countries who were in the room, negotiated that strategy, which did not do that the last time. Uh, so from that point of view, um, this is a, a great strategy, it unites the global maritime world uh, and not least the IMO itself. Do you think that this is going to create the level of trust from the investment communities to start looking at the fuels and the engines and the new ships? Does, is, it, is the 2040 then, because the 2030, that doesn't look very strong to me, but the 2040 at 70% of 70 to 80%, that looks a lot stronger, and that's eight. That's like 17 years from now. I heard France saying that, so that 2040 deadline is the one, that 2040 indicative checkpoint is the one that is going to stimulate change. Uh, yeah, I think I can agree on that. I think the 2030 indicative checkpoint, it could be seen as perhaps a bit vague or weak, if you like, uh, but it is there, it provides a clear signal to the, to the industry itself and fuel producer and other stakeholders. Uh, but the 2040 target, that's much more stringent. Uh, as it uh, looks now, it's, uh, well, we're a bit scared that, well, or wonder, can we actually meet it? But it's many, many years there and just look on uh, how it looked a couple of years ago when we adopted the initial strategy. Uh, we were quite concerned that, that the targets by then were a bit strong, uh, but that's seven years ago now and uh, well, we, we see no problems with it. So I agree, the 2040 target, it looks a bit uh, stringent or perhaps difficult to, to achieve, uh, but I think we will get there and uh, the signal we needed from this meeting is definitely there. Frederick Larsson from the Swedish Ship Owners. Now he wasn't the only delegation member to talk about the numbers. Even in the plenary talks after the revised strategy was approved, the International Chamber of Shipping talked about the potential challenges of shipping achieving the 2040 checkpoint without the help of an economic measure to plug the price gap between fuels of the future and current fossil fuels. There's also the need to give investors, fuel makers, technology companies the market signals, and that is what this revised strategy may have just done. I caught up with Maddie McLean, Secretary General of the Zero Emission Ship Technology Association, or ZESTA, and asked her what she thought was the best and worst of this landmark revised strategy. The best bit is the numbers, and the worst bit is the numbers. Why we've got we've got levels of ambition that, if they're clearly stated, will trigger investment. The bad bit is that they're not clear hard numbers, they're indicative numbers. So for me the real work starts now where we turn diplomacy into numbers that can be put into a spreadsheet and used by accountants and engineers to 
back investment and create projects. When I, when I looked at the actual wording, it doesn't refer to fuels. It actually refers to systems, energy systems and technologies. And that must be a, a great kick for Zestus members because that allows for a greater focus on the te technical solutions rather than looking for ammonia and methanol alone. Yeah, abs absolutely. Because, I mean, it, here at the IMO, we've always looked for policies that were technology agnostic and that includes the fuels the type of fuels used so what what we're really focusing on is on the the outcome the GHG reduction outcome whatever whatever that means and it does as you have correctly stated it does allow us to really focus on the tech on the vessels and as you know Greg our technologies will only use absolute zero emission fuels so you know we need to get that hydrogen and we need to absolutely assure that it's that it's green hydrogen but at the end of the day it's investment in the tech that's going to use that hydrogen that's really going to move things forward and that's the the, the key thing here those in, albeit indicative targets of 70 percent by 2040 and the lower ones for 2030 and the rather wishy-washy for 2050 but do you think this is giving that incentive now for investment in the technology is this what's going to kick this whole sort of technical revolution within the shipping industry absolutely and when you look at we say 70 percent by 2040 but we've added that 80 in so that, so that as we go forward we can lean toward that 80 and say to industry step you know step up and you know we can push the 80 if you're stepping up to the plate here and and i think that, well, two things, and, and, and that's that um, any, you know yourself, that any, any investments made now into new technology or new infrastructure, they're going to be around in 2040. So from this day forward, we're looking at 70 to 80% reductions in GHG impacts of all of those investments. And this also sends a strong signal to the energy industry that we're going to need those fuels and we're going to need them to the tune of 80% by 2040. So it's time to tool up on their renewable energy investments and then that whole supply chain to deliver that energy to shipping. But while there is the view that this agreement about the revised strategy is historic, there are plenty of voices saying that it's just not enough. Seated at the back of the plenary hall at the IMO committee meetings are the non-government organisations, the NGOs. Now they represent the various industry groups like the ship owners for example, but also the green lobby organisations. Now it's these organisations that have been working hard to get the member states to understand those numbers, numbers born from science and which points to why there is a greenhouse gas budget. In other words, how much greenhouse gas can be put into the atmosphere to keep the global temperature rise to within or under one and a half degrees. Shipping may be only under 3% of the total input of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere every year, but this isn't as insignificant, they say, and the IMO as a UN body has an opportunity to set an example. So here's Lucy Gilliam for Seas at Risk, a European-based association of environmental organisations campaigning for ocean conservation. Well, we've got something. It's like a step forward, but it falls far short of what we need to adequately address the climate crisis. 
Why, why is that? Because when I looked at it, I could see 70% reductions for 2040. And I heard the intervention earlier from ICS saying there aren't enough fuels. We'll try and do what we can. We need a levy to be able to do that. Um, so there are concerns that we can't get that amount of shipping onto the water by 2040 to even meet that target. Well, see, last week we released a study with um, CE Delft looking at 2030 targets, how we could meet them. And that, that research shows that we could be meeting 1.5 degree aligned um, targets, the, the science-based targets, with existing technologies and existing know-how of how to change operations of ships. So, looking at the, the fuels that are available now, looking at technologies like wind propulsion and also looking at, you know, shifting the way that we operate ships, slowing them down, that we could be meeting the more ambitious 1.5 degree aligned targets. What we've got here with the 2030 targets and the 2040 targets falls short of these science-based targets that were being proposed um, by the Pacific delegations, for example. Um, so, you know, our view as um, NGOs coalitions and is shared by some of the member states is that we can meet those targets but what we need is a clear regulatory framework to really push industry to deliver. When you say 1.5 aligned targets have you broken that down to say well this is what that actually means because that seems like I can't really turn that into ships on the water having to use different fuels or different technologies? Yeah, so when we're talking about a 1.5 degree aligned target, what we're talking about is the carbon budget that we have to keep the temperature below 1.5 degree limit. Now, there's different ways that you can meet that um, uh, carbon budget. So you can either cut emissions by 50% by 2030 and have a more gradual decline um, with zero emissions in 2040 or 2050, or you can have a kind of a less steep curve like 36% um, by 2030 and then meeting like 94% by 2040. So both of those would be 1.5 degree aligned, but where you have different chances, different odds of making it. So the, the science-based targets that have been um, proposed by UMass and by others, that's with a 50-50 chance of keeping below 1.5 degrees. And we, and as the NGOs were saying, that's the bare minimum we need to be doing to keep, you know, 1.5 um, within reach. Now, what we've got today with a strategy is below that and we've also got language in there that's saying we're going to go for 20 percent at least 20 percent by 2030 but we're striving for 30 percent even if we take that more ambitious striving figure it's below what we need to be doing for the science-based targets so that's where we've got our concerns so coming out of of um imo today you know, we're going to say, great, where we've got to now, but we're going to be looking to local, national and regional action to deliver that gap and to make sure that we keep 1.5 degree limit solidly within reach. That's what we absolutely must do, you know, to protect island communities, um, to protect coral reefs, to prevent um, extreme weather, tipping points, etc., from from happening. Lucy Gilliam from Seas at Risk. The IMO isn't known for a lot of exciting activity, but last week was something of an exception. Monday saw campaigners with a somewhat new approach to campaigning, asking delegates to dance for the oceans outside the IMO building. There was an almost party-like atmosphere. Then, 
Then on one of the evening receptions, a lapse in security led to three campaigners getting into the IMO headquarters and wandering around daubed in blue body paint and they're laying down in the middle of the delegates lounge playing dead totally ignored by the delegates until being escorted out by the police and then on friday as all the delegate countries were making short speech after short speech about this historic agreement a speech of a totally different kind was heard That is John Tokave from Fiji, one of the Pacific Islands recognized under the label of small islands developing states and at direct risk of climate change. So after the MEPC meeting was done, I caught up with John and asked him about the song and its meaning and why do it at the IMO's MEPC meeting. I come from the island of Rutuma in the nation of Fiji. My villages are Malhaha and Itutiu. Now you've come into the IMO and in the middle of the IMO you did a haka. What was the message? It's not called a haka. Uh, we acknowledge that it it could feel the same mana as a haka, but where I come from in Rutuma, um, our ancestors, we call it a kota. So a kota is um, one of an old war chants that we used to do during our times of our forefathers, where we used to challenge and int intimidate our challenges to war, making them feel scared, making them feel um, nervous, so that we could get the upper hand mentally. So what we did was, I've done research in changing this kota from challenge, instead of challenging someone to war, you're challenging this concept of climate change, this phenomenon of climate change, with the help of everyone present in the room. You're acknowledging everyone's presence, you're acknowledging that there's more work to be done, the fight is still ongoing, it's not, it has not, definitely not ended, and we're challenging climate change that us as states can work together, cooperate, collaborate together in making, in a way, through diplomacy and negotiations, we can battle this phenomenon of climate change and make it stop. We're here at the IMO where yeah. we've seen the development of a revised strategy. I know that a lot of the least developing countries and the SIDS, yep. they've been campaigning for a lot stronger yep. action really a lot, a lot higher ambition mm. are you pleased then with what you've got is this something that you think that the industry as a whole the maritime industry can use and grow with or do you are you disappointed initially we as the pacific countries we all came with a common goal and that was 1.5 we did not get 1.5 and for that we're a bit sad but a bit disappointed however I acknowledge the Pacific delegations and their constant um, efforts, their, 
their work, their negotiations in trying to make a better offer than what was initially given. Because what was initially given was very detrimental to our livelihoods back home. And with what we got at the end, I mean, I can't, I can't thank enough the Pacific delegations, their coordination, their energy, their togetherness in supporting each other, because this was never, me, I felt this was not about the money, this was not about revenues, this was about our literal existence. And that's what we came here for. We fought for 1.5 because it's already a compromise. And once we didn't get that, we didn't, we, we felt it wasn't good, but then we, with what was initially given was worse, way, way worse. And I thank um, our Pacific delegations and I thank everyone that, that were part of those deliberations in trying to make a better move. And what we got as this new adopted revised strategy was in a way better, but it's also an opportunity for us to start the work as soon as possible for the sakes of our people and our communities back home. Now, you're, you're obviously pushing quite heavily yes. to have, a, to have a, a levy, for example. Mm. So that the revenues that come out of the levy will go into decarbonisation of the shipping industry, but yes. importantly, a lot of this mitigation effort that you and other countries um, in the Pacific are going to need. Yes. We, we're fighting for the levy, and the levy is still there, and we're going to keep on fighting for that because everything's connected. We want the 1.5, we want the just and equitable transition, we want the targets. The targets were, even though we did not agree to the numbers that we wanted to, everything is connected to 1.5 and right now we're not on that trajectory. And again, you know, we, we made, we, we came all the way from our homes to, to make this happen, to fight for it here. And um, what has happened is, we may not have gotten what we wanted, but it's given us an opportunity for the Pacific to continue this fight. We're not giving up. We're not sinking. We're fighting, you know, and we're not going to give up. We're going to see a revision of the strategy. Yes. In five years. Uh, that, it's, it's almost an end point in the document. But in five years, do you think we're going to see delegations come to the IMO and really deliver? I really hope they do. And there's no, we have, there's no other choice. Like we always mentioned in the beginning in our interventions for the Pacific, time is not on our side. Climate change is going to continue to happen. You all, you're, we are already seeing it happen. It's not going to stop. Perhaps it'll be worse than what it is in the next few years. But it should definitely be a wake-up call. Not till then, it should be a wake-up call now with what's already happening. You have these fires in Canada. You have these frequent natural disasters that are happening in the Pacific. You've got sea level rise. It's... It's already beginning. What we wanted out of this was to start the change now. We wanted it as soon as possible because time was not on our side. And I believe with what, with the revised strategy that we got, it's an opportunity for not only to people to be awake, people should already be awake. States should already be awake with this phenomenon that's happening because everything that's happening from now till then will be on us, will be on these deliberations that happen today. Whatever happens, whatever disasters or shocks that happen, it's going to happen. So John Kalkave from Fiji on the need to rally Pacific Island states and use the achievements in the revised strategy for the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from shipping to inspire further change, both within the IMO, but within other international forums like the UNFCCC. 
So that's it for this episode of the Aranax podcast, recorded in the corridors of the IMO in a week where a deal was made. A deal that some are calling historic, but others recognise as still a stepping stone for better things to come. So that's it also for this season of the podcast. I'm off on a short vacation, likely to return in late August with new episodes of the podcast. And if you like what you hear, if you like what I try and do here with the Aronax podcast, then please share it, spread the word, even better get in touch with me as well. I recently reached 10,000 downloads of this podcast. It sounds like it's a nice big number, but it is hard work, even though it's extremely enjoyable. And if you want to support my work, if you want to support the podcast, then again, get in touch with me, please. Sponsorship helps pay for what I do. I have a few ideas for sponsorship that may be of interest. So until the next time, I'm Craig Eason at Fathom World. Goodbye for now.